Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Regular listeners to the show know that we've recently started a, let's say, an open-ended series of episodes talking about albums that we really like. And the first one was Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. The second was Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. And this week, we're going to talk about my favorite Pink Floyd album, Wish You Were Here. That's funny that it's your favorite Pink Floyd album. To me, um, I would have thought that you would have liked something a, 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 a little more expansive, a little more daring, a little more... Uh, Gee, I don't know. I just, it's its an odd record. It's got three pop songs on it. So that's what strikes me as like being unusual. I wouldn't really call them pop songs. I mean, the, the way that they're constructed, the music in them, I wouldn't call them pop songs. I wouldn't call them well, pop the reason, songs. Well, the only reason I call them that is because the only reason I know those songs originally is because I heard them on the radio and then later played them on the radio. And I was never able to put the whole album together until I actually heard the whole album <laughs> in college i mean because you just didn't hear shine on your crazy diamond on the radio but you did hear have a cigar you heard wish you were here and you heard uh what's the other one welcome, welcome to, to the machine. machine so all three of those we play you either heard on progressive fm and then later they became part of classic rock so hearing the full album was different for me because i came at it uh, in portions <laughs> did they not sell records where you lived <laughs> where i lived in 1975 when this album came out none of my friends liked pink floyd oh yeah so this is an interesting thing we were kind of talking about this before we started recording you were saying by 77 when animals came out this was a dinosaur and it really a lot of the music we listened to back then probably less now really depended on the people we hung out with sure and um while we were all blues fans, I think most of, uh, most of the guys I hung around with saw uh, Pink Floyd as like Fish or The Grateful Dead. as like, they just do spacey blues rock. What's the big deal? And nobody was really paying much attention to them until Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Money. You know, that's a good blues song. <laughs> Money is a really great blues song. So Yeah, but so pre-Dark Side of the Moon, I think... Pink Floyd yeah. was a, a sort of a niche band. Yeah. Dark Side of the Moon was a breakout. And for me, you've got this triumvirate of albums, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals. I've mentioned in past episodes that it took me a long time to really appreciate Animals, and I like it a lot now, a lot more than when it first came out. Dark Side of the Moon, to me, it's got a wonderful conceptual thing to it, but it seems a bit overdone in the sense that it's trying to be too cute. It's it's music that's really not performed well live because it's all the complicated studio effects. And because in a way it's been played out, having heard that so many times. One of the one of the things that we forget is the fifth member of Pink Floyd is the studio. And when the fifth member of your band is Abbey Road Studios, you can't actually take that guy out on the road with you. <laughs> you know, you can't you just can't do it. I think and and that's one of the things uh, I think that uh, a lot of people don't take into consideration how much post-production and how much construction goes on in a, on a Pink Floyd album, or at least on these albums, because they were very, that 
like I said, they're a spacey blues band, but when you add the effects and you add the the, the cool stuff and the and you and then they create uh, meaning where perhaps there wasn't any before because things come together in different interesting collisions. Um, you know, then you've got yourself a Pink Floyd album, and I think a lot of the problems with recreating that stuff on the on the road is just because they just you can't you can't simulate sitting in in your armchair with headphones on. <laughs> well, it's no, it's not that. It's that there's so much going on. Yeah. I was looking on Wikipedia. There'll be a bunch of links in the show notes. I was talking about how for this part of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, it was a guitar and a mini Moog, and this part there's a lap steel guitar, and you know there there's there's the rock band where the guitarist has a double neck guitar and the keyboardist has 11 keyboards around him. And you can do that, but you can't make the kind of sound variety live that you can in the studio for Pink Floyd. And I think they're not a great live band. They weren't a great live band. I, I only saw them when they did The Wall. And it was like seeing a musical. Everything was so perfectly, there's not a drop of improvisation Everything was, everything scored, right? Everything programmed. programmed. Programmed, yeah. Yeah. And in a way, reading up a little bit about this, and one thing that I came across was how unhappy they were as a band, that they didn't like touring, and particularly the Animals tour was, I think it was the last concert where Roger Waters got really upset about some fans and spit on them, and that's what led to writing The Wall about, you know, they wanted to be behind a wall, and... They just weren't happy. They were writing about breakups, and they were writing about Sid Barrett, and they were writing about unhappy things. You look at some of the lyrics, not so much in On Wish You Were Here, but in Animals, really angry lyrics. And it's as, it's as if they didn't like the fame that they acquired quickly with Dark Side of the Moon, and that just blew them apart. I think there's, there's two things. There's, there's a push and a pull going on, because you can tell that they don't like being pulled into the machine— I love the beginning of Welcome to the Machine because it really does feel like you're being sucked in to something. Um, and I don't think they like that. And I, and I think they felt a lot of pressure to come up with a, a, a follow-up to Dark Side of the Moon. And that would make me mad, too. Um, they, it took them two years to finally get into the studio, right? After Dark Side. And they had been touring the Dark Side album for, uh, what, three years? Well, the Dark Side of the Moon tour went from January 72 to June 73. Then in 1974, they did two legs of a tour from, let's see, June to December. It was about 27 concerts. And what's interesting is I looked at their set list in that period, November 1974. There is a live recording of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I'll link to it on in the show notes from Apple Music that they released digitally sometime early this year few months ago. It was previously on one of those big box sets, those collector's box sets. And so the early Shine On You Crazy Diamond wasn't split in two like it is on the album. They opened with this for about 20 minutes. Uh, the, the show in question was November 16, 1974 at Empire Pool, Wembley, London. They opened with this for about 20 minutes. Then they played Raving and Drooling and You Gotta Be Crazy. Now, these two songs are early versions of Sheep and Dogs on the Animals album. But you look at the set list. They're doing these three songs, and then they do all of Dark Side of the Moon, and then you do Echoes. Echoes is the long song, sidelong song on metal, which was the album before Dark Side of the Moon. And in a way, they were kind of locked into this album 
performance live. They couldn't just do songs live. So in June 75, they opened with Raving and Drooling, You Gotta Be Crazy. Then they play all of Wish You Were Here. Then they play all of Dark Side of the Moon. Then they play Echoes. On the 77 tour... So they're still playing Dark Side of the Moon years uh, after the album came out, and they're still forced to play the whole album. Yeah, they have to play the whole album. So in 77, the set list opened with the whole Animals album, followed by the whole Wish You Were Here album, then Money as an encore, and then apparently sometime through the tour they added Us and Them as an encore. Then occasionally they did some other encores like Careful With That Axe, Eugene, etc. So they were locked into this full album performance because they limited themselves to making these albums that could only be appreciated as full albums. And in a way, that's not rock and roll. That's really why I think they have these three radio-friendly songs on Wish You Were Here. I mean, they really are jaunty <laughs> compared to like some of the, the stuff on uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, you know what? I, I, wanted to, I definitely wanted to mention this. Whenever I want to uh, do some research on an, on an older album, I always go back to the Rolling Stone review. And Rolling Stone wrote a scathing review of this record. First of all, Rolling Stone does not think that the musicians in Pink Floyd are very talented to begin with. And they couldn't, they couldn't diss the album without also suggesting that David Gilmour is a mediocre guitar player, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know anybody who said, I want to grow up and play keyboards like Richard Wright. I mean, I'll, I'll grant you, he's not exactly the, the most creative guy, but I mean, you know, in the studio, Richard Wright's a good keyboard player to have around. He knows how to, how to voice chords. He's, he's let's keep him in the band. Um, but I was really surprised that Rolling Stone just totally decimated this record. And I, I'm beginning to wonder if that was also, because we used to read Rolling Stone religiously, and I'm wondering if that reviews like that kind of soured me on Pink Floyd. Although I, I know I was listening to them shortly after that review came out, shortly after the album came out. Yes, but of course it's gone on to sell more than 20 million copies, and it's one of the top-selling albums of all times. The initial reviews are they're interesting because they do reflect the climate, and particularly in rock and roll back then, maybe less today, there were, at publications, were fans of certain bands, and they didn't like certain other bands. You know, they maybe, if they liked The Grateful Dead, they didn't like Kiss. If they liked Kiss, they didn't like The Grateful Dead, that sort of thing. Yeah, that is that is true. I mean, we, like I said, we followed whatever Rolling Stone leaned into in order for us to seem like we knew what we were talking about. Then, of course, we would toe the line for Rolling Stone. Um, it, re reading that review now, it really seems like they were just resentful about something. Uh, I can't imagine what it was, but I mean, maybe it's because these uppity British blues boys think that they're, you know, kings of progressive rock when they're really just mediocre musicians who have uh, great control of the studio and, and that sort of thing. I don't, I don't know. I, I like Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I find, in, and so we've done a few episodes about progressive rock. I'll put a couple of links in the show notes. There's just a tiny veneer of progressive rock here. It depends on how you define progressive rock, but when you strip that away, it's a blues guitar album for the most part, with an amazing guitar sound. And I think David Gilmour is a brilliant musician. I think his his riffs on here, they're not like the fastest, wildest, you know, who's the guy from 10 years after? Alvin Lee. They're not like that sort of stuff. But 
incredibly melodic the way he shapes solos. The one thing I noticed, and, and looking at this really closely, so Shine On You Crazy Diamond is in nine parts. So it opens the album and closes the album. Five parts is the first half and four parts is the second half. How many minutes of singing do you think there is out of the 26 minutes? Oh, dear. Uh, for the whole, through the whole thing? Uh, five minutes. There's about four minutes. Oh, wow. Just under four minutes. I mean, there are very few lyrics. So it's it's essentially... If you look back at Echoes, which was mostly instrumental, were there even lyrics in there? I'm not sure. It's a mostly instrumental piece of music. It's a, I don't want to say it's a classical composition, but it's a very composed suite of musical sections that fit together very closely with a tiny bit of lyrics in it. Now, everyone knows the story. The lyrics are about Sid Barrett. People may not know the story that while they were in the studio at one point in 1974, I think they just finished a mix of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And they're looking at this like bald, overweight guy in the corner of the studio. And one of them thinks he's the other guy's friend. And the other guy thinks he's his friend. They realize it's Sid Barrett. And they were really shaken, and a couple of them broke down in tears because of what had happened to Sid Barrett. Sid Barrett, one of the founding members of the band who had drug and mental health problems. So Shine On Your Crazy Diamond is about him getting lost and confused. I said to you the other day, I kind of like the idea of Shine On Your Crazy Diamond as one long song, not interrupted by the other three pop songs. And, and it's two ways to look at it, right? It does work as a long song. But it's kind of interesting the way it bookends the album with with two very long, you know, half-side tracks bookending the three other tracks. It's an interesting approach. You could go either way, I think. But didn't I read that Gilmore didn't want to include the second part on this album, or was it? I'm not really sure. No, what Gilmore he... wanted it to be a single track, and the three other members wanted it to be cut in half. I see. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Now, if you think about it, at... 12 and 13 minutes each, roughly, you could get FM radio airplay for one half of it. Maybe. Maybe so. A whole side is a little bit riskier, but I don't think they cared about airplay that much. No. Um, well, you know, yeah. but, well, Dark Side of the Moon was still selling like crazy, so I'm assuming that um, the guy handing out cigars, they wanted they wanted another, you know, six million seller. Um, so I don't... Maybe that's why they just went in a different direction to split things up, not to make it less concepty and more of like a regular album to kind of get away from the the dark side of the moon feel of a continuous thing. Dark side of the moon had two singles, unlike Thick as a Brick, where it only just had the one opening section. The first one was Money with Any Color You Like on the B side. The second was Us and Them with Time on the B side. Now, it's only two singles from one of the most popular albums ever. So again, this highlights the fact that they really were an album band. They weren't a singles band. They didn't try to be a singles band. Now, they did release Have a Cigar backed with Welcome to the Machine, or in Italy and France, backed with Part One of Shine on You Crazy Diamond, which is kind of weird. I'm surprised that the song Wish You Were Here was never released as a single, because if anything, it's totally different from the rest of the album. It's acoustic guitar. Oh, and for goodness sake, it's a very popular song over here now. Um, if I When I did a morning show... One of the few Pink Floyd songs I was, you know, that was day parted for the morning was Wish You Were Here. I've actually heard it played at funerals. Fair point. Um, yeah, that, that could sort work. of thing. You know? I'll have to think about that. Seriously. Um, you know, it, my wife can't even listen to it anymore because she heard it played at a family funeral. Yeah. It's one of those songs yeah. that she just tears okay. up when she hears it. So um, it's, it's, 
it's a weird song. See, I don't think of it as a funeral song. I think of it as he's talking to Sid Barrett. I wish you were here, but he's not. He's out yeah. in cosmic land. Uh, but, you know, if you think of it as like, you know, being removed from somebody, then it's uh, it does have a funereal yeah. sort of so feel the, to it. The, the concept on this album is, well, the concept of Sid Barrett, but there's also this anger at the record business, which part of it is Welcome to the Machine and part of it is Have a Cigar. It, it's kind of, they were just angry, weren't they? You know, um, uh, the, the interesting thing about Have a Cigar, it's not sung by anybody in Pink Floyd. Is that the one? No, Roy Harper sings it. And um, in the Rolling Stone review, they said some unknown folk British folk singer does the vocals. And... I just thought that was kind of weird that they picked someone else to sing it because they weren't happy with the way they were singing it. Yet for years, I always thought that was Roger Waters. And yeah. I only found out like 10 years ago that it was not. And Yeah, that high register voice yeah. is, is how Roger Waters and, often sings. And even the cracking that he does, there's a, every, everybody else is just, um, that's like the wall. I mean, it sounds like yeah. the way Roger Waters sings in The Wall. So I, I, I can't understand why they did that unless it was just, I don't know, they wanted somebody else to be them. They wanted, I don't know, don't understand it. But they were arguing about whether they, that, that neither one of them could sing it the way they wanted it to. Yeah, Wikipedia says that Roger Waters struggled to record the vocals for Have a Cigar. His problem stemmed in part from the stresses placed upon his voice while recording the lead vocals of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Uh, Gilmore was asked to sing in his place, but declined. And eventually, colleague and friend Roy Harper was asked to stand in. He was recording his own album in another of Abbey Road studios. David Gilmore performed some guitar licks for him, it says. And Waters later regretted the decision, believing he should have performed the song. So, hmm. you know, you make a decision, you got to go with what you make a decision. I guess. I, I don't know what the big deal is, really. It's it's not even a song where the, the singing is important. It's a rock song. It's, you know, it's just... Yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's a lot more important than what we think as listeners, because this is, this is particularly Have a Cigar, is the whole, you know, music industry, we're famous and rich, and they're trying to, you know, make us up to be bigger than we are, but then what's going to happen next? And it, it's kind of, it's their... It's their bleep you to the record industry while they're selling millions of records. Again, I, I, I find it, if you look at the trilogy of Dark Side, Wish You Were Here, and Animals, this, this sits in that middle spot of the most, I think, the most accomplished of the three albums. The first one is Two Studio. Animals is a bit rough around the edges and you kind disjointed. of disjointed i would say disjointed yeah, too yeah you kind of don't know where it's going until you realize well this is roger waters about to do the wall for the next 40 years <laughs> and and wish you were here it has that youthful energy with a bit of anger and i just think the guitar sound is so lovely throughout yeah. the the sound yeah uh, the the piercing guitar the, the plaintive long notes and all that. Now we have to get to the Sid Barrett theme. The We were talking about this last week. Can you play that on a keyboard and drop it in? So that's it. And we sat around trying to figure out what is the, where is this chord from? Now, I personally think it's... I think... She, oh, yeah. It, it's a John Lee Hooker. Ba -da -da -da. It's like, if you think of... Uh, Parachute woman, that right. So you got that. Now here's the funny thing about this that we couldn't figure out, and this is why it has the sound of longing. <laughs> 
It's because it resolves on the fourth. So when you go to the fourth, after you're playing the tonic, da 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 da, and then it goes ba ba ba, and then everybody falls in on the four, right? It's that's why when you play it on the tonic, it's 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 pulling you to the fourth, but we're not going to the fourth yet, and it's a really clever clever line. And you know, I'll tell you another thing too: that four note motif sort of reappears. In other places, very subtly, it's like it's like his uh, his style of playing more so than a deliberate dropping in of the of the core of the notes. But um, it's it's a very David Gilmore kind of thing where he takes a, a riff, a, a traditional riff, and kind of x he kind of just makes it go left or makes it go right. Or uh, I'm always reminded of how he plays pedal steel on um, one of these days. Which is a great thing to watch him do live, just sitting there playing that, and he's just the, just the. Who uses a pedal steel guitar in a psychedelic blues band? That's I know that's Jerry Garcia. Oh, I'm did sorry, a bit. especially yeah, with New Riders of the Jerry Purple Garcia, Sage. Right now, see, isn't that funny that I I think I compared uh, Pink Floyd to the Grateful Dead earlier, and I hadn't thought about the steel guitar, yeah, the steel, the pedal steel yeah. connection, but. Uh, they're both spacey sounds. What I find interesting about that riff is that, so this comes in at the beginning of part two of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And the first part is all this sort of fog over the ocean in the morning type sound that's just really slow and mellow to get you into the mood. And then all of a sudden you come in with the dissonance, the cruel dissonance of that <laughs> of that E that comes in at that last note, which tells you, Oh, things aren't so calm here anymore. You know, it's funny you say the ocean because that 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 four note riff reminds me of like bells on a buoy or bells or wind chimes or something. It doesn't but- sound like four notes that you hear together normally. And and, and it's interesting wind chimes. It, it it sounds like it could be four wind chimes were played in the wrong order. Yeah. Because that's right. what it is. It's B flat, <laughs> then it's an F, then it's a G that goes below the B flat, then it's an E. So if you put them in the right order, it'd be B, E, F, G, maybe all in the same octave. And that's that's like a riff that you could play that would sound somewhat happy. But here it sounds like they're out of order and that something's wrong. Yeah. It it's just it it's a it's a very clear warning that things are not going to be very happy going forward. I think, mm-hmm, yet mm-hmm. it is a blues thing. Yet it is a sort of a, a kind of a, a brass section blues thing you could get as well. Uh, yeah. it, it's it sounds that don't usually come on the guitar like that in that sort of context. Yeah, uh, the 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 bell and the brass uh, thing. I'm going to have to think some more about that after this. Now I'm going to have to listen to the record again. I just yeah. listened to it just before we started recording. I'm going to have to listen to it. Yeah, I listened to it this morning, too. Yeah. And then I listened to some of this live stuff. So I'll put links in the show notes, particularly the 1974 show. So you can hear the early version of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. So there'll be a link to that on Apple Music, where it's good quality. On YouTube, there's a, an audience recording of the concert. So you can listen to that, then raving and drooling, and then you got to be crazy. And what's really interesting, so there's the anger. There's the anger, raving and drooling, you gotta be crazy. I mean, these are really clear, angry songs. The lyrics are different from what they were on Animals in 77. But if you think of, if you can picture the music now in your mind, it's angry music. It's just on the album itself, it's toned down a lot. You know, there's acoustic guitar opening one of those songs. I think Sheep opens with the acoustic guitar, whereas here, it's all electric. It's funny, we were talking just before about... um 
how they they dropped doing Dark Side of the Moon in 77 because it was somewhat of a dinosaur. And plus, they needed to make room for later records. But um, the punks came along and they were angry, too, but they didn't seem to... They didn't seem to grab on to Pink Floyd or any other angry rock music. I mean, they certain the punks would have would have dissed Pink Floyd. Well, I'm sure they did, but the punks only knew how to play three chords. Yeah, well, so did Pink Floyd. To, yeah, <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> and and they only played three minute songs. If, right. if there was ever a punk concept album pre Green Day, because that's I don't consider that the same thing. London Calling is almost a punk concept album. It's just it wasn't conceived like that but when you look at it all together yeah the so we hit 76 and 77 and it's punk and it's like in new york where i was growing up you've got this tension between on the one hand disco on another hand you got punk and the whole downtown new york scene and then you've got all the the what would you call it the polished rock which could be Pink Floyd could be Led Zeppelin, you know, both of whom played at Madison Square Garden that summer. You've got that tension, and they were still selling out Madison Square Garden because of, you've, got, you've got a certain inertia in musical tastes, and it's not like punk arrives and no one listens to Pink Floyd anymore. I was unable to get tickets for that. This is back in the day when you'd have to send in something for a lottery to get tickets. One of my friends, however, who was actually a guest on the show, did get to go to the concert, but was ejected because he threw a frisbee at the the pig that was flying over. Living the rock and roll lifestyle it doesn't always pay yeah, off. Yeah, but but imagine missing that. I mean, seriously, I would have wanted to see animals, particularly because they were doing "Wish You Were Here" and animals. And I saw the wall, and as I said earlier, it's like a musical. It's a stage show. It's you know, it was brilliant, but it didn't have didn't have that feeling that you get. Just one last thing. You said the fifth member of Pink Floyd's a studio, and the sixth and seventh members are Snowy White on guitar and Dick Perry on saxophone. And in particular, when you listen to Shine On You Crazy Diamond live without the saxophone in 74, it really misses a lot. I think the saxophone adds an interesting color that allows that song to be as long as it is, particularly in the second part. Yeah, the sax is great. You know, and the other thing, too, is when they do this stuff live, even now, they have a lot of ringers. You know, they have a lot of, well, they have a couple of extra guitar players in the back. They have another keyboard player, things like that going on. So when they do mount these things, there is more than just the four or five uh, central players. There's a, a lot going on. Okay. Next tracks? Yes. All right. Well, my pick this week is totally the opposite of Pink Floyd. Last night, my partner and I were sitting around, bottle of wine, put some music on in the living room, and I go through Apple Music and I say, you know what? I'm going to listen to this. Igor Levitt recorded the late Beethoven piano sonatas. This was released in 2013. He was in his mid-20s, extremely young to record that. And so this is sonatas 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. Arguably, Beethoven in this period, he was, he was from one extreme to another. The 29th sonatas, the hammer clavier, with this final fugue, which is just, it's like, it's like punk piano sonata. And the 32nd sonata, the transcendence of that final sonata, makes you wonder where would he have gone had he lived a little bit long. He would have changed music drastically the way he was playing. I, I think for someone in his mid-20s to have recorded these so well, Igor Levitt is really quite an extraordinary musician. Now, he's also recorded Bach. He's recorded Beethoven's Diabelli Variations, Zhevsky's The People United Will Not Be Divided, 
a number of other things. Fascinating musician. We didn't speak about this earlier in the lockdown, but he did this performance of Eric Satie's Vexations, which was 855 repetitions of a short bit of music. It lasted, I think, 18 or 19 hours. He did the whole thing. He sat there on his piano alone in a studio with a camera, and he had the score, one repetition per page. He'd play the, the bit about a minute and 20 seconds, pick up a page, put it on the floor, play the next one, 18, 19 hours. He did take a couple of bathroom breaks, probably, you know, some sustenance breaks as well. But he also did this extraordinary series of house concerts of all sorts of music that he would just stream live on Twitter. I'm going to link to the Wikipedia page about Igor Levitt, which has a list of all the concerts he did. Fascinating musician. He's still quite young. He was born in 1987, so that makes him, what, 33? This guy has quite a career ahead of him. Anyway, listen to his early recording of Beethoven's Late Piano Sonatas. Doug, what have you got? I have got the second album by British blues band Savoy Brown. It's called Getting to the Point. came out in July of 1968. This is, this is a period when a lot of British blues bands... Are, are are starting to, to to record a lot like you've got Fleetwood Mac and you've got Spooky Tooth and uh, you know John Mayall and all those people are are starting to get a lot of record contracts and Savoy Brown was founded by a guy named Kim Simmons who is I think one of the great British blues guitarists right up there with uh, Peter Green and Eric Clapton and those types Savoy Brown their second album uh, I guess it's where they really came together on a great blues sound they not only did a couple of covers but they actually did some of their own sort of blues songs. One of the songs they cover on this album is Willie Dixon's You Need Love, which it is said that uh, Jimmy Page heard and uh, decided to record as Whole Lot of Love with Led Zeppelin. So there's some fame there. But the the thing I like about this record and about any of the uh, any band's early blues stuff or any blues band's early stuff is that it's very pure. And uh, Kim Simmons has a uh, has a great guitar sound. He it reminds me of T-Bone Walker, uh, except when he plays slide. When he plays slide, he's got this great rocking, uh, not swampy uh, slide style. But anyway, he had it back then. He's had it for years. He's, I, I think I read the other day he's put out like 50 records, either as Kim Simmons or Savoy Brown. When you go back to this second album, though, uh, it, it's just so pure. And they really only put out about four albums with this configuration – Personnel came and went really quickly, and in fact, there was a wholesale uh, <laughs> split in the band in the 19, in 1970 when uh, Lonesome Dave Peverett, the second guitar player in the band, uh, took everybody in the band and started Foghat. So that left Kim Simmons with uh, uh, having to start again, and that's actually when he started to get more commercial. Uh, when when Foghat uh, decided that they could do commercial blues, that's when Kim Simmons and Savoy Brown did. So that's when you had albums like. Uh, Hellbound Train and their relatively minor hit, Tell Mama. But it's the early stuff that I like, as usual. And this is, uh, this is a great British blues record. Getting to the Point by Savoy Brown is my next track. This was episode number 204 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.